following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I would not say that ordinarily I am a claustrophobic person. Maybe uh, some of you would say, yes, I'm claustrophobic if I get in an elevator with too many people, okay, and the doors close, like I start to get a little panicky, okay, maybe some of you are like that. Uh, I wouldn't say ordinarily I am a claustrophobic person, but um, recently I, I felt what it is like to feel claustrophobic. I was really pushed. It was earlier in the spring, uh, a group of us from our church here, we took a study trip over to Israel, walking in the places that Jesus had walked, and so many of those Bible stories took place and we had, uh, later in the trip, we had this, uh, this afternoon open, and so a few of us went and saw this one thing that you can do, it's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and it's a tunnel that goes under Jerusalem, and it was dug thousands of years ago, you can actually read about it in the Bible, it happened under the reign of Hezekiah, and it's actually an incredible feat of ancient engineering. Some of his men started digging down through the mountain this way. Some men dug this way and, and they still figure out, try and figure out how did they know where to meet in the middle. It's really an incredible feat um, that was done in antiquity. But you can go down and walk through this ancient tunnel. They had found the tunnel. You can walk through it. But the tunnel, they're, they're, for much of it, you can't stand up all the way. Okay, You have to stoop down. A lot of it is so narrow that you, you have to kind of walk sideways through it. It's, there's water that runs along the bottom of it for a lot of it that can be anywhere from knee deep to almost waist deep. There's no electricity. It's pitch black, and it's a 45-minute trek. So let me show you. This is a picture uh, of us going through the tunnel. This is one of the taller points, okay? If you don't see my face in there, it's because I was in a fetal position on the floor, okay? And I remember, like, we were all psyched up. We're like, we're going to do this. And um, we're walking up, and I saw the opening, and I heard the rushing water, and I had, a, I had a mild panic attack. I had to walk out for a second. I had to catch my breath. And I started feeling, like, my skin crawling, I felt like I was going to hyperventilate. I had these like illogical thoughts of like, what if I can't get out? Like, what if I'm tw exactly 20 minutes in, okay, and all of a sudden I need to get out and I can't go backwards because there's people this way. I can't go forwards, there's people that way. What if I can't get out? And I started to like, I had to like really push through and I'm like, okay, no, this is an adventure. I mean, going, I'm practically Indiana Jones going into this <laughs> ancient tunnel, okay? I've got to do this. And also encouraged me that there was a field trip of second graders that entered in right before me, so... <laughs> Felt a little better at that point. So anyway, so I, I, we did it, we walked through, but I felt that feeling of being blind, which is, like, that's a really kind of nervous feeling if you've ever felt that before. And there's a way that we can feel that kind of trapped, confined, caged feeling, and it, it's, it's not necessarily like actually physically, but it is very much just as real. And it's something that every one of us encounters at some point. There is literally no human being that is spared from this. Is there are times when unresolved anger and hurt, bitterness, can close on us like a cage. And it's more than just a symbol because it's like has literal physical implications. Like, it's, it's that person that hurts you, but you still have to work with them. 
and you see them at work, and the moment you see their face, like you're, you're something like your stomach just turns. It's that, that friend that when you hear someone else talk about them, like you have like a physical reaction, like your, your, your back starts to get tight, okay? I mean, actually, it's physically having effects, and that cage can have genuine effects on you. I mean, it can lock us up and affect future friendships, future relationships because of unresolved hurt. Maybe someone you felt betrayed or brokenhearted. That can lock us up for future relationships. And so dealing with this issue of forgiveness... It's pretty much something that hits every single one of us, and it, it could be one of the key things in your life right now, whether you realize it or not, that's holding you back from some of the most precious things that you desire in your life. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks digging into this issue, and we're looking at this a book in the New Testament. It's uh, and later in the New Testament, it's this small book. It's only one chapter. It tends to be one of the lesser-known books, but it is so powerful. It's actually a letter, and there's a whole story that you can kind of piece together behind this letter that's fascinating, and it deals with this issue of forgiveness. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd open to the book of Philemon. Open to the book of Philemon. If this is your first time here and you say, oh, I, I don't have a Bible, we've got it, going to have it on the screens, it's going to be in your bulletin as well. But if, if this, if you're saying, no, this is my home, this is my church, then here's what I want to encourage you, to either consistently use the same uh, digital Bible uh, or Bible app or bring your physical Bible because you want to be using that same Bible, interacting with it, making notes in it, highlighting in it, the same one you're studying on your own time. You want to study here and, and continue that relationship with that Bible. So open a Bible or Bible app if you have it. If not, it'll be up here on the screens. We're looking at Philemon. Um, it, we're going to start in verse 1. How this works is it's, um, it's a letter, and in ancient letters, there was no return address so if you're opening this letter, they would say who it's from first, so you have context. They wouldn't sign it at the end, they'd sign it at the beginning, and they would say who it's from, and then they would address the recipient. So here's how it works. This is a letter to a guy named Philemon. It says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we get into the meat of the letter, let's just get the context here. Paul says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's not a metaphor. He is at this point literally in prison. Uh, there's a number of different times he's imprisoned. We believe it's probably when he was under house arrest in Rome. He wrote a lot of letters. In fact, he probably wrote and sent um, another letter in the New Testament called Colossians. He probably wrote that and sent that at the same time. It's probably with this particular letter because we can piece together this guy Philemon lived in that city of Colossae. And so those letters are probably arriving in the same city from the same people at the same time. He's written these letters under house arrest. He's literally a prisoner. And he's writing to this guy named Philemon, and then he mentions uh, Aphia and also Archippus. That's probably his wife and his son. And it says that there's a, he's writing to them and the church meeting in their house. Now here's the ancient church context. There's no church buildings at this point in history. There wouldn't be for another couple hundred years. 
So when a church met, they would meet in a cave, under a tree, or if there was a wealthy family in the church, they would open up their home because large homes at that time in history would have like a big courtyard and the entire church would gather in their courtyard. The church in Colossae, the Colossian church, it, it appears as we piece this together, they met in Philemon's house. He hosted them. It wasn't necessarily the pastor or the shepherd, but he would, he would host them in the courtyard there. And he's writing to this couple. Now, we, we learn as we continue on that this there seems like a godly family. Look what Paul says. Let's keep going. Verse 4. <clears throat> I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's describing this guy this, and this family, but especially Philemon. He says, man, I remember you're just your love and your faithfulness that you share with those around you. He says, man, it brings me joy and comfort just to think about it. And as I'm praying for you, these guys, this guy has a relationship with Paul. Paul and Philemon knew, know each other. And Paul is celebrating that this guy is a godly guy. And it seems like they're a godly family. In fact, what we can piece together from other references in Scripture is their son, Archippus. He's wrestling. It seems like he's wrestling with the call into the ministry. Like he's he, he might be called to be a pastor or missionary, and he's wrestling with this. And so we have this godly family that's ministering to this family that meets, this church that meets in their home. And they're, they're, a, they're a godly, mature family. It says um, that they show love to the saints. Now, what does that mean? Just a, on a side note, there are some Christian traditions that they have saints, and what they mean by saints is a particular group of people, a group of Christians throughout history that have done incredible things, and they bestow sainthood on them, like the Mother Teresas of history, like they're considered saints. But when the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, talks about saints, it's talking about those that are those set-apart ones, those holy ones. It's just talking about Christians. It refers to all Christians as saints. And so the tradition that we are in as a church, that we follow in what the Bible does, all Christians are considered saints. Why is that? It's because the most impressive thing about a Christian is not anything that we have done or could possibly do. It's what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so all because that's the most incredible thing, the miracle that Jesus did for us, the scripture refers, the Bible refers to all Christians as saints. So it says that this family is loving on this Christian church that's meeting in their home. Now, why is that important before we go on? I'm not sure where you're at this morning in your, your journey spiritually. You could be here today and say, look, honestly, I'm kind of even surprised I'm in a church. I'm not very spiritual. I, I don't even, wouldn't even say I'm a Christian. I've just got questions. And if that's where you're at, first off, I just want to say I, we are so glad that you're here. I think this is the exact type of church that, that uh, you want to be in. We love journeying with people who are at that place. So glad that you're here. 
You may say, you know, spiritually speaking, I just recently got baptized. I've just, I'm just starting out on my journey. Or maybe you say, look, I've been a Christian all my life. I've been a Christian 30, 40, 50 years. Most of my life I've been following after Jesus. Wherever you're at, I want you to see who is being addressed in this letter because that should push us all a little bit. This is a, this is a mature, godly Christian family that are leaders in their church. And Paul is saying, he's about to say, I need to push you on something. So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, this, what this is talking about, and this is true of all of Scripture, but especially in a passage like this that's addressed to seasoned Christians, wherever you're at on your journey, I would encourage you to, to not tune this out, to not hear this for someone else. Because if you're hearing this passage taught, I believe God has something he wants to teach you in particular. So tune your ear in. Because this subject matter, it's not something that any one of us like thoroughly conquers. It's like in a couple weeks, I have a, uh, a visit to the dentist. And um, I'm, I'm just kind of like, I always go to the dentist. I don't know why I have this desire, but I just want to hear the dentist just one time look at my teeth and be like, I, I don't have to do anything. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> You're, go on your way, okay? That, that, that's incredible. They're like, I just would love to hear that from dentists. I don't think I'm ever going to hear it. But I can guarantee you, you will never hear this from a dentist. Like, they will never look at your teeth, be so blown away, get the whole staff to look at your teeth and say, our work here is done. Have a good life. We never need to see you again. You have no need for dentistry. That's not how dentistry works. You never, like, fully accomplish like caring for your teeth. Like you never get to a point in dental hygiene where you're just kind of done. Like you never get to that point. That's what this issue is like. You're never done. You never like thoroughly like I'm there. And so before we even enter into this subject matter, let's just kind of like lean in no matter where you're at on your journey with, with God. Because this is, this is one that's going to target every one of us. Paul very gingerly enters into how he's about to really push this, this family and this guy Philemon in particular. Here's what he says. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Did you hear what Paul just did? He said, I could command you. He says, I, I have spiritual authority over you. I know, Philemon, you're a successful guy. He says, I know that you've got a, a great business. I know that you're important in, in the city. Um, but spiritually speaking, he says, I have authority over you. He says, I could command you to do this because it's required, but I'd rather appeal to you out of love. Do you see what Paul just did? That was a move that he just did. Imagine it's like this, your neighbor knocks on your door, you open up and says, hey, um, I'd like to borrow um, your lawnmower, and I could bring up that I lent you my weed eater last week, but I'm not going to bring that up, I was just hoping you'd lend it to me out of the goodness of your heart. That's kind of the move that Paul just pulled. I mean, if you're Philemon, you're like, okay, but you, you kind of just did say it, even though you said you weren't going to say it, Okay. Here's what we're going to say, see, all through this, Paul is very tactical, very gentle, very strategic, 
and we're going to dig in to why he's, he's being like this a little bit more next week. But I wanted you to kind of see how careful Paul is being. What is this issue that he's tiptoeing around? Let's just find out what it is. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What's happening? Look at this, verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul's tiptoeing around something here. What's the story? Apparently, Paul is in Rome. He's imprisoned. He's under house arrest. Like, he can't just go out to the market or wherever he wants. Like, he's, he's confined for the gospel. This is towards the end of his life. He'll eventually be executed in Rome. And he's there, and somehow he comes across this guy, Onesimus. Maybe an Onesimus sought him out. Maybe they had a mutual friend, but of all the people in Rome, in this gigantic city, like the capital city of the empire, Paul runs across Onesimus, who used to be the bondservant of a guy he knew, Philemon. Not just a guy he knew, a guy he led to Christ. So he meets this guy, Onesimus, he's like, wait, I know Philemon. I know that household. I know Aphia and Archippus. I know them. You used to work in their household. And he gets to know this guy. Now, he was a bondservant in their household. Now, what is a bondservant? This is tough for us to grasp because there's not really a modern or equivalent or an equivalent in recent history. A bondservant is a servant in a, in a wealthy household, be considered part of the family. But something has happened where they've somehow lost their freedom. Maybe they went into great debt and they had to go into indentured servitude. Apparently that person has gone into debt. They can really relate. Um, maybe they've gone into great debt, indentured servitude. Maybe they've, um, they've gotten captured in a war. Maybe they are a criminal and this is uh, how they're paying their debt to society in some kind of indentured servitude. But they're in the household. They have lost their freedom and they serve in that household. But being a bondservant is not necessarily, um, it can sometimes be an advantage. In that society that they lived in, a bondservant, you could, you could have all different levels of social status and authority. You could be a bondservant and be a high-level city administrator. You could be a bondservant and can amass enough wealth to purchase your freedom but many, once they amassed that wealth, were, had such an advantage in that uh, economic arrangement, decided to stay as a bondservant. You could be a bondservant and be a physician. You could be a bondservant and be in the police force. It, it's hard to kind of com compare something in, in modern history. What was that ancient system um, that Onesimus was a part of working in Philemon's household? Well, apparently, 
Paul is talking to this guy Onesimus. He's like, I know Philemon. And then you've got to be wondering what Paul is putting together in his brain. Why are you here in Rome? And how did you get here? Apparently, what we can piece together is Onesimus ran away, fled, turned his back on the, on the household, turned his back on Philemon, and probably, from what we can piece together, stole from Philemon to fund his journey and to set up his new life. Paul comes into contact with Onesimus. He starts to get to know Paul. Paul leads him to Christ. Notice he says, I became his father while I was in prison. Spiritually speaking, he became his father. He leads him to Christ. This guy becomes a Christ follower. He starts working alongside Paul, and then one day Paul has to pull him aside and have a tough conversation with him. You're a Christ follower. You're a Christian. And so is Philemon. Philemon's your brother. And you've done him wrong. You need to make this right. I think you need to go back. He says, but I'm going to send a letter with you because I'm going to mediate from a distance. And he sends this letter and Onesimus takes it back. So I want you to imagine this. You're Philemon. As you're reading this letter, Onesimus is the one that's handing it to you. Here, here's what's happening. Onesimus is that guy in Philemon's life that turned his back on him and stole from him and cheated him. And now he's standing in front of him. And what is Paul asking Philemon to do? He's saying, I want you to receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant but as a brother. I don't want you to see him as someone who owes you a debt, no longer see him as someone who's wronged you, no longer to see him as Onesimus, the one who cheated you. I want you to see him as Onesimus, your brother. And what's fascinating is we can read between the lines the fact that we actually have this letter and it wasn't lost in ancient times is proof that Onesimus left Paul's presence and went all the way back to Philemon and actually delivered the letter. Because otherwise, how come Onesimus, Paul's... Con you know, he's imprisoned. He can't, like, follow up on Onesimus. He has no control. Onesimus could have said, sure thing, I'll head right back to Philemon, sailed away and gone to some other city and taken the letter with him. The fact that we have this is proof of what's going on in Onesimus' heart, even though we never hear from him. He's wanting to reconcile things with Philemon. He shows up and hands him that letter. Now, I want you to put yourself in Philemon's shoes for a second. I want you to... to Pull in your mind who your Onesimus is, because all of us have one or more. Who is that person that you'd say, man, this is the one person that, I mean, they have really hurt me. They have really wronged me. They have made my life miserable. They have, they have done things in my life that have never been held accountable. The things they've said, they've done, they've broken my heart, they've betrayed me. The things that they've done, that person is now standing before you. And Paul is asking Philemon to now receive that person, that Onesimus, as a brother. You know, if we, before we even started this series, if we were to take a poll, like, is forgiving someone a good thing or a bad thing? Like 100%, we'd say, no, I mean, it's better to forgive. I mean, that, that's a good thing. You don't want to be an unforgiving person. Of course, everyone wants to forgive. But when you bring your Onesimus in front of you, 
man, there's something inside that says, no, there's something about forgiving them that's wrong. Like, where does that come from? Is that just cruelty in our hearts? No, it's not cruelty. In fact, it actually comes from a good place. Actually, in your heart, the thing that makes you say, forgiving them, there's something that's not right about forgiving them, that, that impulse. It comes from our sense of justice. Justice is a good thing. God is a God of justice. Justice is right in that person, that, that our Onesimus that we have like in our like private lockdown, like we have in our private cage, in our own little jail, like the people that we have say, you're in jail because, let me just remind you today, you're in this prison because you did this, 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 and this. You cheated me. You broke my heart. You did this. You said things about me. And the people that we have in our prison, they're there for good reason. And there's a sense in which, like, why would I swing the doors open and just say, okay, you, you can, you're set free now. The reason I wouldn't do that is for a good reason. It's because they have never been held accountable. They've never apologized. They never asked for forgiveness. They've gotten away from it, and it's just not right. It's unjust. So, yes, they're in my little prison. See, forgiveness... Man, it is, yeah, it's one thing to say, oh, of course, it's a, it's a good thing to be a forgiving person. But when we get down to like the gritty part of forgiveness, man, that is hard. But what does Paul say here? He says, I'm appealing to you out of love, but he says, I could command you to do what is required. See, there's something unique in what Jesus taught. When he taught that forgiveness was not optional. He said, if you're going to follow after me, Jesus said, if you're going to be a Christ follower, forgiveness is required and there's really no exceptions. Why is that? I mean, that's one of the most radical, shocking parts of what Christ taught and one of the most radical, shocking parts of what it means to follow Jesus. What's the logic there, Jesus? Why would I throw my hands up and just say, well, all right, I'll, I'll set them free. I'll no longer hold them accountable for what they did. What's the logic there, Jesus? And he pretty much summed up the entire logic with one story he told. He told the story, it went like this. He said, I want you to imagine a king and he's got his accountant. And he's in his, his court one day and the accountant's reading through and he says, look, we've got some people that owe you some serious money that we've got to talk about. And he says, I've got to talk about this first one. He owes you significant money. And Jesus in the story throws out this obscene amount of money, equivalent today of like $6 billion. Now, can you imagine a corporation being in debt $6 billion? Like that's not going to go well. But this is not a corporation or a company. This is an individual the person owes $6 billion. He says, wow, that guy owes $6 billion, bring him in. And he's, the king's all worked up and he's angry. He brings the guy in and he says, you realize you owe me $6 billion. And the guy's like, you're right, I know. He says, that's so much money, there's no way I could pay you back. And he says, all right, throw the man in prison until his family can pay back. That's what the law says, throw him in prison. And the man says, please don't do this. He says, you owe me $6 billion. He says, please, please, don't throw me in prison. I'll never see my family again. I'll never get out of prison. Like, my life will be over. And the king sighs and just, just this mercy comes over him and he says, okay. He looks at the accountant and he says, wipe the books clean. And he looks at the man and he says, your debt is forgiven. And the man says, what? 
He says, you don't owe me any money. He says, all of it, all $6 billion is wiped clean. I mean, imagine, this guy didn't just win the lottery, okay? He, he got his life back. He can see his family again. He walks out of the king's court. I mean, he's high-fiving strangers. He's kicking his heels together, you know. He's, he, is just, he, he goes into Starbucks. He buys everyone's coffee, okay? I mean, this guy... This is like the best day of his life. I mean, he's he just got a $6 billion debt forgiven, and he's walking out of Starbucks. The door closes behind him, and he says, hey, wait a minute. He looks at the guy at the table, and he says, I know you. You're that guy I lent $12,000 to for a business transaction. You never paid me. And he says he takes the man, and he gets him around the neck, and he says, pay me back my $12,000. He says, I don't have the money. He says, police, police, take this man to jail. And the police show up and they're starting to drag him off. And the man says, please, please, I, I can't pay it and I won't get to see my family. Please have mercy. And he says, he gets him around the neck and he says, absolutely not. You owe me $12,000 and you're going to be in prison until you pay it back. And drags him off to prison. And Jesus lets the story hang in the air for a second. And, it, and he kind of leaves it with this kind of idea. He says, can can you imagine what the king, when he finds out the man he just forgave $6 billion had no mercy on someone else for $12,000? Can you imagine what the king's response is going to be? If you're a Christ follower, here's then what that means that, that you have put your faith in and believed. We who are Christ followers, we accept this truth that we are lost in our sin. In other words, there's a holy, almighty, ultimate being who created everything and we owe him our worship. And since he's an infinite being, the first moment we break one of his commands Against an infinite being, we deserve an infinite punishment. That means the first self-centered thought, reaction, word, the, the first deceptive thing I say, the first time I even just kind of twist the truth a little bit, the first time I break his law, what that means is I realize I deserve an eternity away from God in hell as a just punishment for my sin. Like, let, let's just not move on that, from that too quickly. In, in other words, while we've been sitting here together, you've probably forgotten that you've been breathing in and out. And you've probably not been conscious of the fact that your heart's been beating this whole time. And you've probably not actually thought about the fact that your cells are holding together and not just falling into a pile of cells on the floor. And that's all because, as the Bible says, God is holding all things together. So the being that is right now keeping you from being a pile of cells as we speak, when I choose to disobey Him or do something self-centered or do something in my best interest rather than obedience to Him, I am looking into His face and spitting in His face an infinite being. But what a Christian believes is that that being loves his creation, loves you so much, he loves you like a child 
So he sees the Son of God. He came down to earth. He dies on the cross. He's tortured and bleeds and dies and rises again on the third day, back from the dead, defeating death. And the whole point of that is that he was paying the infinite debt that you and I could never pay. We'd spend eternity paying for it. But Jesus pays that debt and the king of the universe says to you, I am offering you forgiveness. What do I have to do to earn it? He says, you can't earn it. I'm offering just accept it out of my love. And a Christian is one who says, yes, I have committed an infinite debt against God. I deserve hell, but he loves me so much. I believe that Jesus died for me. I accept that and I receive his infinite forgiveness. And I'm walking in that knowing that I will have eternity in heaven with him because of Jesus' blood who paid my debt. And the forgiveness of God rearranges my entire life and my entire thinking. And if you are living in perpetual, infinite forgiveness, the logic is, how could I possibly not then extend forgiveness to those around me? I love in Jesus' story that the guy who is forgiven the $6 billion debt, he's not strangling someone who owes him $5. $12,000 is still a lot of money. And it's Jesus' nod to this. I know that you've been legitimately hurt. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the fact of, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. Let him off the hook. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, Jesus is the only one who truly knows how you've been hurt. But he's saying you are living in a framework of forgiveness. But that means this, the number one forgiveness blocker, the reason we say, I, I can't, I can't just not hold them accountable in my heart and my mind. When I see them, I am reminded of the things that they did. In fact, there's something in me that feels like I have to make myself remember. If there's something in me that makes me say, I'm not going to forget what they've done. I'm going to rehearse it in my mind. But the, the number one forgiveness blocker is this, it's self-righteousness. It's that I am in my heart, by keeping them in my little cage, I am in my heart saying things like, I cannot believe you did that. I would never do that to you. I would have never done something like that. The thing that you did is so egregious that I can't believe it. you deserve to be in this cage. And the problem is self-righteousness that we think we have the right to be locking people in cages when Jesus can whisper into our ear, you're right, you've never done something like that, but you have done far worse to the one who's made you and loves you more than anyone else. And when we let go of our self-righteousness, which leads us to make, an ex make excuses so easily for us, for ourselves, when we wound others, but make sure that they have no excuse when we've wounded. We give no room for excuses for others when we've been wounded. And when we release that self-righteousness, we realize, I have no right to keep anyone in a cage. I'm one who's been forgiven. So who's that anesimus in your life? Because follower of Christ, if you're operating from a paradigm of, paradigm of forgiveness, forgiveness is what's required. 
But you say, ah, there's just something in me. It feels wrong to just open the, ga the gates and let them go free. And what's making you feel like that's so wrong is your sense of justice. But that's the number two forgiveness blocker. Because what Jesus is whispering in your ear again is he's saying, but vengeance is mine. I will repay. And what you're not believing is that justice is not up to you. It's up to God. You don't have to keep them in your cage as if God's justice system in the universe is broken and so justice has to be up to you. You can say, God, I, I surrender. I open the cage. That's no longer my business. I am not the blind justice. I'm the hurt party. I'm not the one that can determine justice. I'm opening the gates. I am no longer holding this sin against them. I'm no longer going to rehearse their wrongs. I'm going I'm to let it go. I'm no longer going to allow my thoughts to go places when I, when I see their name or when I see them in person or someone talks. I'm no longer going to have all those associations. I am no longer going to hold that sin against them. You say, what is forgiveness? Well, whatever it is that you're expecting from God to forgive you, that's what forgiveness is. And he says, I removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He says, what's required is forgiveness. Trust that he's got justice in his hand. And remind yourself that you've got no, that we have no room for self-righteousness. We are, we are operating out of a paradigm of forgiveness. You say, yeah, but it's complicated. I have to see this person. And what about setting up boundaries? I don't want to be continually hurt. Are you saying I have to be a doormat? And, and man, it's complicated. Absolutely, it's complicated. And there's more that we're going to look over in the next couple weeks. How do you handle these ongoing relationships and setting up boundaries? And what about the fact that I can say I'm forgiving them, but I'm still mad tomorrow? And how do I deal with that anger? And we're going to unpack all of that over the next couple weeks. But just for today, it's something very simple. Choose to forgive. Choose to start that journey. And maybe the thing that's cueing you uh, right now is as you're being reminded of how much you've been forgiven. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He was a great teacher of, uh, a great teacher of Christianity. And, and, and this is what he said. He said it on this quote. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Maybe today that's the best place for you to start. Maybe today you're, you're like, man, I, do I really believe that I've been forgiven the inexcusable? I heard a startling statistic. I just want to close with this. I heard a startling statistic um, a couple weeks ago about Christianity in Dayton Broward County. And I was surprised they pulled Dayton Broward County 78% of those who live in Dayton Broward said that they claimed to be a Christian. 78%. And they asked more questions. And as they asked a cup, just a handful of just basics of what it means then to be a Christian, of things about Jesus and about heaven and hell, and just the basics of Christianity, it was whittled down. People said, Oh, I believe that. That was whittled down to 4%. So here's what burdens me as a pastor in this community. There may be some in here today, some watching online right now, 
there may be some that are saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But what you're basing your fact that you're a Christian is, yeah, well, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians and my grandparents are Christians or I'm a Christian. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not this. I'm not that. So it's Christian is, is what I am. Or yeah, I grew up in church. So of, of course I'm a Christian. What it means to be a Christ follower goes back to a transaction that took place about 2,000 years ago where the infinite debt that hung around your shoulders was paid by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's that you believe that he rose again from the dead and, def- and fully paid for all your sins and have washed you clean. Have you accepted that forgiveness for yourself? That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're here and you say, well, yeah, I th- I'm a Christian. I like Jesus and I do some good things and so I'm expecting to go to heaven. Please, can you just put the e-brake on for a second? That's not what it means to be a Christian. It means that you have embraced the fact that God is offering you forgiveness at great cost to Jesus Christ. And you're accepting that forgiveness because if you haven't done that, you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time and find forgiveness for the first time today and find your true salvation. And if that's you and you don't know for sure that you've done that, I want to lead you in a simple prayer right now where you can receive forgiveness from God. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you and you're saying, look, I want to receive the forgiveness of God today, then I just want to ask you, just right now, everyone's eyes are closed, everyone's heads are bowed. If you're saying, yes, I I need to put my faith in Jesus, I, I want to find salvation today, I want to know that I'm forgiven, then with no one looking around, if you say, that's me, then I want you to slip your hand in the air and put it back down. I see it. Amen. Praise God. I see it. I see it. Anyone else you say, today is the day I need to put my faith in Jesus and receive forgiveness. Just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Amen. I see it. If that was you, I I want to lead you in a simple prayer right there in your seat. I want you to make these words your words between you and God. Just say this in your heart to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I know that I have an infinite debt but I also know that Jesus, you paid for my debt and you're offering me forgiveness. I put my faith in you and know that because of your sacrifice and that alone, I'll spend eternity with you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.